Everybody and welcome to Tiki Tuesday Talks. Stoked to be here for another edition. We got a really interesting conversation ahead, uh, so let's bring the crew on. Hi guys. Uh, Brian, tell us where you're calling in from. Uh, hey, I'm Brian Evans, and I'm calling in from uh, Brooklyn, New York. Um, yeah, I run uh, Sunday in Brooklyn and Rule of Thirds uh, bar programs. Awesome, so rad. Claire. Hello, hello. <laughs> um, I am sitting in what was the dining room of my little bar and restaurant here in Brooklyn, New York, um, and is now a slowly turning into a retail space. Um, but, um, our place is called hunky dory here. I'm the owner. And then I also have a, a platform talking about sustainability in bars and restaurants called outlook. Good. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Steva. Hi. <laughs> uh, I'm in Birmingham. Lovely. The plants in a different know. spot today. You're changing it up. Well, we're always together. <laughs> that's the important thing. George and I are always together, so that's all that matters. He's got a new leaf. It's very nice. Oh wow! All right, the evolution. We should do mm -hmm. like a, a phased thing, you know? Oh yeah, he's gonna get to like a giant. That'll be awesome. Play. Aaron, how's Baltimore? You're muted, so we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. There he is. <laughs> Anything nope. else to add? No, I'm very excited for this talk. Very <laughs> Perfect. Love it. All right, guys. We'll circle back with you shortly. Uh, let's get let's move this thing along. So Uh, Claire is going to be speaking all hands on deck why Tiki must get green. As mentioned, owner, bartender, Hunky Dory, founder of Outlook Good. Look forward to hearing more about that. As usual, chat box and questions if you're in Crowdcast. Uh, please feel free to ask questions as well with Facebook Live. Also, stoked for you guys to share the event. Uh, tip jar is Venmo at Hunky Dory BK. Always appreciate it if you guys can donate. Presentation, 30 to 40 minutes. Cocktail session for 10. 
and then five questions with the Tiki fam with Brian. So Claire, a little background. Claire has bartended, managed, and consulted some of the country's most well-known and awarded cocktail institutions. From Houston to SF, SF and now New York, um, she's worked vigorously against issues of sustainability within the industry. Um, her past work with Tin Roof Drink Community was honored with the industry's first ever Sustainable Spirit Award and the 2017 Golden Spirit Educator Award presented at Tales of the Cocktail. Most recently, she opened an awesome spot, Hunky Dory in Crown Heights of Brooklyn. Um, it's landed many accolades, including being named on several Best of New York lists. Uh, and then she's going to get into a bit on Outlook Good, a consulting and educational company focused on her goal of creating a culture of shared information and inclusivity centered around greener bar practices. So with that, we'll hand it over here. I got it. It's me. Great. Thank there you. Yeah, that's you. <laughs> Um, I like went back and forth on a few um, names to make this topic sound like more fun um, and wanted to add lots of like fun imagery to it. But to be honest, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that this is the most fun conversation <laughs> to have um, within cocktails. But um, that being said, I think it's all things worth considering. Um, so that's me. Um, I want to make sure I have the right. Yeah, there we go. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about the intersection of sustainability and tiki. Um, and I hope that you all are seeing my screen. Yeah. Um, so sustainability is like one of those really loaded words, loaded topics, um, especially when you think of it used in terms of an industry that's all buzzwords. Um, so I just kind of wanted to break down um, like what I think or several people think about when they think about sustainability. Um, these are two images that um, are used in academic circles to talk about the way that sustainability um, interacts with um, different cultures and economics and people, of course, because um, we're a big part of that. On figure one, it is, um, you kind of see sustainability in the center of this overlapping Venn diagram. And that's kind of like viewing sustainability as a balancing act between um, equity, um, economy, and the environment. Um, but um, for myself, I think more along the lines of the second figure, which is the nested systems view of sustainability. And that um, more or less is like summed up by this idea that the environment is the containing system that we um, all, we and all the systems that we're a part of and that we interact belong to. Um, societies and cultures exist within that. And then the economic structures that we um, involve ourselves with are products of um, those societies and our interactions with the environment. Um, when I think about um, sustainability, I always try to think of um, these uh, foundational concepts that I pulled from a very dorky book um, about teaching about sustainability in terms of social justice. And it is, it 
using these foundational concepts are things that is a is a lens that I always bring all of my decisions and um, choices back to um, and making sure that everything I'm doing kind of um, is in reflection of these ideas. And I just wanted to touch on a few of them because I think in particular that they are um, um, really prevalent in in the idea of tiki itself, which is a beautiful, um, you know, usually results in these beautiful experiences and beautiful drinks. Um, so I wanted to mention um, and define a few of them. So we have beauty, which is this quality that enhances life and contributes to well-being, which I think that we, as I just mentioned, can all, um, you know, subscribe to as part of a big part of the tiki experience. Um, is this very like visual. Um, um, experience that we have when we're drinking and then partaking in it. Um, community, um, humans are part of the ecological, cultural, and social communities. Um, ethics, um, and I wanted to highlight this specifically, but um, we define ethics in this way as serving to guide human endeavors, and it's not just a topic for philosophy. So um, ethics in terms of real um, intentions that are followed by um, actions that back that up. And then systems. A system is an interdependent set of elements that form a complex whole. Um, and I think that one's really important because we're going to talk about how all these things kind of piece together to form not just tiki, but interact with all the um, different economies and cultures and people and land that um, ultimately come together into our cocktail glass. Um, so I just wanted to kind of address the fact that, um, you know, people are always like, oh, why are we talking about this? Let's talk about rum. Let's talk about who has the best coconut cream recipe. Um, and that's really cool. But, um, and I, and I, you know, I mentioned fun. I think I said fun like 20 times in the beginning. Um, but I think that um, even calling myself out, that there is this idea that, you know, tiki is supposed to be fun, cocktails are supposed to be fun, bartending is supposed to be fun, sustainability is not fun. Um, and what I think that that line of thinking does is frame like, A, it presents this false dichotomy, like you have to choose between the two. Um, for myself, um, we at Hunky Dory do a lot of cocktails here that center sustainability. And I think that they're all very fun and whimsical and it's built into the, like the name of our business, Hunky Dory and everything we do here. Sustainability is the underlying value. So it actually adds value to, um, also adds value to our, um, all these like fun little things that we do that makes people like our place so much. Um, and I also wanted to consider that fun in itself has a question of e equity embedded in it, that um, there is definitely um, a discussion that um, who has access to this fun that we are supposedly having when we're having, when we're enjoying Tiki and who doesn't. And then just to consider what type of fun are we having that does not consider um, people having their basic needs and rights met. I think 100% sustainability can be fun. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that validation. Um, <laughs> um, so we need, um, oops, let's see. We need Tiki to escape. So this is another like really big, um, I don't want to say excuse, but 
Um, maybe another reasoning why we don't want to think critically about Tiki in terms of sustainability. Um, so when we think of the idea of escapism, um, there is like obviously some things that are like kind of problematic within that. Um, ultimately, um, it, escapism refers to escaping, you know, life's problems and um, it kind of legitimizes the um, responsibility of the real world's problems, right? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but there is, um, we still need to make sure that we're not um, losing sight of some really important things along the road. Um, so um, it's not about absolving oneself of accountability or, um, you know, rushing into that necessarily either, even though I personally believe that you should, but it's about this balancing act. And um, I think one really important thing here is when we talk about escapism in Tiki, um, we have to think about the places that we're escaping to and the lands and the people that are um, part of this culture of Tiki are often the people that are most negatively impacted by climate change around the world. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, again, like consider where do the people in these places get to escape to as waters rise and land is compromised um, as climate change moves forward. Also, this is not going to be a talk about does climate change exist or doesn't it? Um, just so you're aware, <laughs> you're in the wrong room. <laughs> um, and then um, I think this is a big conversation. Um, and I, it's funny because I was reading some articles that um, Kelsey and Ian had posted um, in reference to Trash Tiki and um, their shift to um, not using the word tiki. And there were some articles that were several years old and some that we, myself and my um, business partner, Chad, were um, referencing too and how people had, um, you know, thought about this idea of colonialism um, and sustainability as like something that um, the, the tiki world had already come to terms with several years ago. And so I think that's um, a very specific viewpoint. <laughs> um, but um, specifically, I think that it's, you know, obviously something that we all need to be really critical about um, in terms of any type of um, engagement with um, capitalism and products and things like that, but um, specifically in um, Tiki. And this talk is mostly focused on the ways that climate change intersects with the centering of whiteness um, as we engage with Tiki. Um, so, these are some kind of concepts that I wanted to just highlight and flag for people that were um, tuning in um, and why we're like bringing this into the conversation because they all go hand in hand. And it's oftentimes thought about like, oh, let's silos climate change and not talk about social justice or climate justice or all these other human factors when uh, the truth is they all have to go hand in hand. Um, so I'm gonna run through them. Um, Colonialism deprives people and places of value. Um, it dehumanizes the supply chain. So um, not acknowledging all these different factors, especially um, when um, a big topic here is gonna be agriculture. Tiki is agriculture and ultimately agriculture is land and people. And um, to think about how we're, um, how we're interacting with them. Um, who does and does not profit money and power from Tiki? Um, whose perspective are we prioritizing when we talk about Tiki? And when we ignore um, these um, conversations, when we think about Tiki or when we center whiteness in Tiki, it ignores that the people and cultures that we are 
um, you know, idealizing are ultimately the people and cultures that have hold the many of the solutions that we need to fight climate change. And that could be um, their focus on community, folk knowledge, or traditions that are passed down generationally. But these are, um, you know, they're, these are the people that have been stewards of their land and our land um, long before we got here. And um, when we ignore or disregard um, and not center their presence in it, we're really um, not acknowledging that they have so much to offer in terms of contributing to this conversation. Totally. By, by the way, if anybody's interested, we, we hosted um, Mariah Kunkel, um, who has a, a, a project she calls Pacifica Project, um, where we delved into a lot of that component of how do we look at colonialism with regard to Tiki? Where do we go from here? Um, so we're looking forward to like continuing to host that conversation. I think we'll probably have a follow-up coming up in the next couple months as well. Um, which is really useful for, for people like us who are celebrating it, but want to do it appropriately, want to respect the tradition, want to understand what, what is inappropriate, what is appropriate, how do we support those voices in that kind of element. Absolutely. And, um, you know, one um, on this slide particular, it's kind of doubling down on all of that as well. And there's one term here that I think really links that idea of um, colonialism, and centering whiteness and sustainability, and that's the term extractive. When you have purely extractive relationships with certain cultures, peoples, and land, what do we call that? And I think that is, you know, ultimately, like we need to think about like what we are extracting, how we're extracting it, and then also what we're giving back to these cultures yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, extractive as an idea is essentially the premise of colonialism, right? So exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was the answer to the question. Oh. <laughs> got it. I got it. <laughs> um, so this was um, a quote from a writer um, who wrote for uh, an article for Punch Drink a few years ago called "The Paradise um, Paradox," that actually talked about all of these things in terms of sustainability and tiki. Um, trying to understand if sustainability is a is a trend um, in cocktails. Um, it's been the focus of my work for the last eight years. So I don't know what um, constitutes a trend at that point, but it's definitely something that um, is, you know, slow to, to work its way into the fabrics of our bars. And, um, but more and more, I get more people, more and more every day, I get more people interested in it. Um, and you can see like these little pieces of momentum happening, whether it's something as low, like low hanging fruit, like straws, or it's something like, um, thinking about, um, where their rum is coming from. And I, um, think it is, this was a great quote because it's, you know, this tiki is not responsible for these grave consequences, but it's neither exempt from them. Mm -hmm. And if we're selling an idolized, idealized version of paradise in a, appropriate while actual paradise, is it is that an appropriate while actual paradise disappears? And so that's kind of like the underlying um, message behind this talk and really behind everything I do when I think about cocktails. Um, so a question as, before we go on. Yeah. I'm curious about those conversations. So where are they coming from? Is it people at the bar? 
what's what's kind of the breakdown of like the conversations about either products or you know sustainability in cocktailing or whatever like give us a little more on that i'd love to hear a little more about what you're experiencing are you talking about like um when we interact with guests or yeah, is that what you're referring to um i or think that like industry people reaching out for insights from you um both so we definitely lots of bartenders definitely media um and um and even here at our bar, um, you know, we've made a big point to we're kind of transparent in all of our operations. Um, and that's just like our MO. And so we talk about a lot of things that probably make, um, would make certain restaurant institutions <laughs> shudder. Um, but um, we don't really keep up too much of that illusion of things aren't fucked up. And <laughs> so when people are like, how's it going in the pandemic? I'm like, it's not great. Um, <laughs> all my friends are out of work and they're losing their jobs. And um, and so we've always been like, try to be really transparent. Um, but at the same time, we don't want people to walk in our bar and like felt, feel like they're hit over the head with this message of sustainability. So we have like these little, um, these little cues, these little messages built into our menus, built into the materials that we use um, that I think reinforces those ideas. And it's, I always use this example of, um, there's nothing worse when you go into a bar and you're like, oh, um, I want a rye whiskey. And then all of a sudden the bartender is giving you a 30 minute history of prohibition and um, <laughs> and explaining to you the difference between all these mashes and you're like, I just want to rye whiskey. And, um, and so, you know, that kind of um, geeky bartender trope is I think built on the um, idea of people, some bartenders um, focus more on, well, lacking, a, you know, the social um, IQ to understand like how much a guest wants to engage in this. And so that's something that I really try to emphasize with our staff here is that not everybody wants to come here and talk about carbon footprint. You know, some people are on Tinder dates. Some people want to read their book. Some people don't share those politics with us. And um, or some people might want to know, but they don't want to, like, walk straight into that conversation. You kind of need to be gentle with them. And that's such a big part of bartending. Right. And is, um, you know, kind of gauging those interactions with your guests and so we um we have these little cues like the straws that we use um i can't have um ice on my teeth and <laughs> it really bothers me so i'm a big straw user um but we use like canes um these straws made from uh reeds sourced from southeast asia um sustainably sourced from southeast asia we use straws made from um, agave fibers, bagasse that are left over from the from tequila production. Mm. Um, we'll have an ingredient in a cocktail um, that you'll see later that says sunflower seeds, and people are like, "Oh, what does that mean?" And um, or we'll label something like um, behind me. I have this turmeric, and it's the company's called Diaspora Co. And they're a company I reference a lot because I think it's such a great example. And we actually list the brand, even though we don't list many brands on our menus. Um, and people always ask questions. So we drop these little hints everywhere to get people to engage with it. And, you know, bartenders are always, especially cocktail bartenders are always seen as like the, um, 
the gateway to or the trendsetters for a lot of drinking culture. And if you think that stops with just like what's in your glass, then, um, you know, you're obviously like, you know, you're not giving yourself enough credit. Like people are picking up on all these cues that we are doing. And that's how like fair trade coffee got started. And that's how um, ultimately the straw movement is something that has been, I think, um, pretty universally at this point is starting to really like be addressed in a lot of different yeah. cities around the country. It was, and it was amazing how that took fire. And I could see it from traveling all over to different markets and just the conversation was like overnight was everywhere. And it was exactly really cool that. So exactly. Um, so basically what you're saying is there's ways to engage from a menu perspective and dig in. That's not necessarily like, told to people out of the gate, but there's there's opportunities to kind of dig in if you so desire, but maybe not. Is that is that kind of what how you do it? Yeah, and I think that is, um, you know, again, I don't want people to walk in and be like, welcome to Claire's Sustainability Funhouse. Um, that's not that's not our thing. You got a new name already. Sustainability Funhouse in. But there's definitely like, you know, again, I our our guests are smart and they're picking up on all these little things and they want to know why we use this in a dish and we, they want to know um, why we list our farms on our menus. They want to know why we're using this straw instead of a plastic straw. Um, and even now I don't even have to say things because we're serving things, uh, drinks out a window um, <laughs> onto the street. And people I'll always that. ask people, I'm like, do you want a straw? And they're like, well, what is it made of? They're like quizzing me on it. Like, <laughs> 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 and I'm like, look, I, I, know. Look, I have the sustainability fun house. All right. I yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, they're starting to steward the conversation too. So cool. I think this talking about these things is really important so that we don't get left behind um, as well. I really like that approach. I mean, not just about sustainability, but many pieces of, of allowing for, people to dig in and get information, but not being like served it up immediately, like you have to digest it. And I think, especially for people who are running bars and restaurants in other parts of the country that maybe aren't as progressive as Franklin Ave and Crown Heights, it's it's probably a really cool way to invite the conversation, but not force the conversation out of the gate, you know, and, and potentially risk like, you know, alienating somebody who who needs to be moved it slowly through that process, right? As Absolutely. Get over the head with it. Absolutely. Um, I am going to hit you over the head with it in the next sure. few slides, so. Sure. <laughs> I, I'm here. Um, hit it hard. Hit it hard. Um, so I just wanted to. Um, so now that, like, you know, kind of establishing that groundwork of what what I am talking about when I talk about sustainability today, um, and um, the framework within that I'm doing that in. Um, I wanted to just target a few small things so that we can consider them and we'll dig into one in particular and then maybe touch on a few um, so that you kind of get an idea of like the ways that we are um, curious and inquisitive and critical of the elements that come together that make up Tiki. Um, so these, I just outline a few that are some like more like visual um, obvious things when you think of tiki. Um, so I thought, I think it's really interesting that like the rise of 
tiki in itself and the, is kind of coincides a lot with the rise of plastic. Um, and I kind of broke down this really, um, what I think is, <laughs> um, I have a very different idea of what people, what I think is interesting, but, uh, <laughs> but um, the rise of plastic in, um, in the United States or in our world in general. So um, in the 1920s, 30s, you have kind of the boom of plastic because we have this oil industry that's producing oil and they're realizing that they have these two outputs, these two byproducts of making oil called ethylene and propylene. And, um, and they ultimately join forces with the petrochemical industry to turn those into our two most used plastics today. So polyethylene is made from ethylene and it's what we use in most packaging and propylene is what you see in like, or polypropylene is what you see in like yogurt cups, diapers, microwave dishes. Um, in 1941 is what they really call the dawn of the plastic age. And that's like right around after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And there's just a shortage of rubber and steel and things like that. And so um, the U.S. government, whoever was in charge of purchasing for the U.S. military, decided like what we can turn into plastic, we're going to turn into plastic and kind of created this huge need and this huge industry from that. And then in 1946 is when a um, very smart man um, invented or um, uh, fine-tuned plastic injection molding. And what that means is like, if you think of a swizzle stick um, with a name of a bar um, embedded into it, that is plastic injection molding. And that's really what took made plastic take off in our homes and in our bars and our restaurants as well. Um, I've read, um, I'm always scared to um, put out tiki facts to tiki people um, because they usually know way more than I do. But I read through several articles that um, Harry Yee is um, ultimately um, seen as one of the forefront um, bartenders using a lot of garnishes. And he popularized the drink umbrella and the orchid and some other like plastic accoutrements. And, um, but at that time there were a lot of people already starting to use um, these, um, use plastic in their, in their cocktails um, as like kind of flashy um, and branding opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, and in 1960, the average person is consuming about 30 pounds of plastic products per year. And I want to say, and I cut this off at the end, but the last number is in 2018, and we use about 300 pounds of plastic a year. So about 10 times that amount um, in the last um, 60 years. And, um, and then a few other little dates to um, flag is in 1960 um, is really the first, is noted as one of the first times that, um, plastic um, replicas of tiki's, of the high tiki's, um, I believe I'm saying that right, um, is um, made, which were usually made out of, um, out of stone, um, are made and they're given to Air New Zealand um, um, flyers. And uh, I think it was like something like over a 200,000 were given out in one year. Um, so you start to see like these plastic um, plastic souvenirs work their way into um, uh, South Pacific cultures. Um, and then Spirit 
is the company that really ult um, ultimately um, trademarked the swizzle stick or um, what we think of as a swizzle stick today. And in the late 60s, their sales um, surpassed 1 million. And in 1979, the TWA purchased over 20 million plastic drink stirrers. Um, so that's kind of like that, I think like a very fast progression of us going from not using anything <laughs> to consume beverages Absolutely. to, to um, introducing this plastic um, piece into our, into, our, um, into our cocktails, but specifically into um, travel, drinking associated with travel and drinking associated with tiki. Um, so today, where is most of our plastic made today? Um, most of our plastic today is made in China. Um, where does this plastic go? Um, per capita consumption in Asia, Africa, and India is only one third of the United States. So United States leads um, the world in plastic consumption um, being imported um, into our country. Um, as I mentioned, who makes this plastic? Um, and most of it is coming from China. And um, I kind of zeroed in on this area in China that's specific to um, plastic injection molding, because that's kind of what we're talking about right now. So whether it's toys or um, kitchen goods, and um, though I couldn't, I'm not 100% sure if it would include something like a swizzle stick, but it's, you, it's where most of the plastic injection molding is centered in China. Um, the living wage there defined in 2015 was $398. And while the plastic factory, typical plastic factory worker was making $175 um, per month for a 60 hour work week. And I think that's um, something to consider when we talk about sustainability, not just in terms of like where our plastic is coming, but who is making it. Um, because again, it's, we're talking about these um, nested elements of um, environment and society, which is made of people. And we want to always think about the sustainability of the people that um, work within these systems. Um, so it's, I think it's really interesting to think about the fact that these people are being paid so little to make these things that are ultimately undervalued in our society. And that's what usually holds that pricing so low and they're paid so low. Um, a lot of the swizzle stick companies that, um, I looked at online and like first searches, um, a few of them are based in the United States. And after doing some digging and like looking up job websites and like job review sites and things like that, um, these are some of, you know, most of the fact people working in these factories are working minimum wage, they're working overtime. Um, some of them aren't getting benefits and a lot of the, one of the bigger plastic swizzle companies actually are, um, in the United States, um, who I won't say here, um, is they do a lot of contracting through department of correction. So I know that we are talking a lot right now about, um, what does dismantling certain institutions look like? Well, it also means defunding, um, organizations that, partake in um, that profit and partake in these um, systems as well. So that's something to consider. Um, and that like literally took me an hour to Google. 
um, and do some research <laughs> in um, uh, three days ago. And so yeah, that's, new, that's new for me. It's um, and I know that that's like, well, and that's heavy. And um, but those are things to consider. And when we talk about like, you know, who cares if we're just using this swizzle stick? I think that, you know, again, it all comes down to the resources, the limited resources we're using, um, which are coming from the earth and then the people that are making them. And, um, and then the systems that feeds into. So I think those are all things to really um, consider. Um, and no again- way you could achieve the same objective without using that, right? Like, does it have, do you need a, a throwaway or takeaway plastic swizzle stick per se? Exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've used um, things made from bamboo or we just i mean ultimately we try to work out most single-use items out of our um shop or we did pre-covid um but um right now we actually to be transparent we use all um we all we use all eco products and we use all single-use plates and glasses um which kind of hurts my soul in a lot of ways but it's also something that um it was a hard decision to make but it felt like the right decision to make to um, prioritize our staff safety um, yeah. and not bring not bring those things back to dirty cups and dirty um, plates back to the dishwasher. But um, it's all given a take and it's ultimately how much time when you're looking to source these ingredients, how much time you want to dig into them or how what kind of questions we need to ask. And I think when you um, all of this is about question asking and we are the people where do people driving down the prices because we demand to pay so little for certain items, especially certain items that people look at and then throw in the garbage um, right afterwards. Um, um, and then we're the people that, um, you know, need to set the standards for these companies as well. So all very heavy things to consider. Um, let's see here. Um, I think I put up the wrong presentation actually so this should be interesting but uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> um i wanted to jump into a few other things because i know i have limited time um but i guess i i'll say like who deals with plastic waste um i could go on and on about um you know the end of the, the downstream um perspective of being sustainable um and you know thinking about like how does recycling work in your city does it work in your city it often doesn't work in most cities um but that is usually unfortunately on left to the due diligence of the user at the end of the day um so it's part of our jobs to kind of help reinforce these very flawed not transparent systems to make sure that um, we're trying to get our plastics and our disposables to the right places um, so I'm going to jump into flowers, um, which I think is, um, kind of touches on the cocktail you'll see a little bit later, but, um, I always, I used to, when we first started talking about sustainability and cocktails, we, um, always had referenced this one picture of this, like, really shitty looking Mai Tai, um, excuse me, <laughs> that, um, that had like this big orchid and all this plastic stuff on it. And, um, but I think about that orchid a lot. And so I did a lot of <laughs> research on orchids and flowers and things like that. And um, 
the flower industry, um, this quote in particular is drawn from a, a paper that was written and it focused on the sourcing of three global um, industries and that was flowers, diamonds, and gold. And we're all like very familiar with talking about things like blood diamonds and the um, nasty industry of sourcing gold and the countries and colonialism that that is embedded in and the countries it exploits. And, um, and I thought it was really interesting that flowers were lumped into that too. Um, because it's something that we don't really think of like this beautiful um, earth grown thing being um, part of a very uh, exploitive toxic system. Um, but unfortunately it is. And flowers are um, tough to kind of talk about because they are, um, you kind of think that they're grown down the street, but most of the United States flowers are grown outside of our country. Um, and a lot of those, um, well, I'll say first of all, that flowers are some of the most pesticide intensive crops and pesticides are responsible for most of the carbon footprint um, that agriculture, the agricultural industry um, puts out into the world. Um, we talk about how agriculture is like the main culprit, one of the main culprits for climate change. We're talking about pesticides. We're talking about the chemical runoff that um, that damages water and kills um, ecosystems and water. We're talking about how that um, water abuse, um, the pesticide and chemical runoff into that water also affects the water that we drink, um, which is all, which are all limited resources. Um, flower industry is also, is not free like most industries of labor abuses, um, including the exposure of um, most of these people to these very toxic environments. And when we think about where we're sourcing um, these flowers, like outside of um, especially tropical flowers, we're talking about places like um, Malaysia and the Philippines and Thailand specifically. Um, keep trying to swipe on my laptop, but it doesn't work that way. Um, <laughs> And I definitely upload the wrong slides on here. So I'm you sorry. Switch it? You um, can switch it. I have some questions for you if you want to uh, switch it out. Um, I think it's okay. It's, okay. Um, but um, I just wanted to show um, the, or I didn't update the, pro the presentation. I just wanted to show like, this is um, most of our orchids, the orchid that you would um, specifically think of sitting on top of a tiki drink um, comes from Thailand. Um, and they use a lot of those in Thailand, but they also, because they're kind of representative of like uh, Thailand tourism, um, but most of them um, go to, um, is exported um, outside of Thailand and a lot of them go to the United States. And for the most part, when I did that research, um, a lot of them went to um, the restaurant and hospitality industry specifically. So think about like hotel displays and, um, food, a lot of them are, are used in food um, in particular. And um, most of these farms that you're, that we're sourcing these flowers from are small family owned farms and they are, um, um, you know, subject to the same kind of um, price, um, pricing that we demand from those flower markets as well. Um, so again, it's something when you think about putting a flower on a, on a cocktail and oftentimes it doesn't get eaten. I won't 
I've never seen anybody even orchid, even though they're edible, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I, feel like I find that they often go into the, um, into the garbage. Um, and so obviously there's something that we are always pushing the price down, but they have lots of other problems. And as you can see, since most of them are being exported, um, the big thing for these flowers is that they are part of what we call a cold chain. Um, and that means that it's a uh, part of a series of refrigerated facilities um, on farms, um, on planes and boats um, that they have to be in um, in order to get to us fresh because they have such like small, um, um, small shelf life. And so all of these refrigerated trucks, these refrigerated um, boats, these refrigerated airplanes, especially right now when there's less um, uh, commercial airplane flights um, is they're basically loading up these flowers on flights that are half empty. And so it actually raises their carbon footprint as well. And um, I'm sorry, all my slides are fucked up, but um, I wanted to just also show um, there was a group in Europe that um, started an organization called um, Fair Flowers, Fair Plants. And they tried and they wanted to um, put 10 points together that we should all be thinking about that uh, when we think about the flowers that we source and to think about them critically. And as you can tell um, with the six that are showing here, um, that a lot of those have to do with not just the land, but also the people that work for them, that work that land and the people that sell them into um, these flowers into our markets. And so um, again, we're not talking about sustainability of like a piece of um, agricultural property. We're talking about the sustainability of the people that work there. And so this is why these conversations to me are highly important. Got it. We also had a comment here. Um, one of the alternatives that was mentioned is using, and I'm going to maybe mis mispronounce this, but nasturtium blossoms to garnish. Nasturtium uh, blossoms are delicious. Nasturtium. Yeah. And so Ella grows them in Northern California. And so that's her solution of doing that. So uh, maybe maybe some ideas depending on where you live and, and what you might be able to find. Yeah. We, we, I've used nasturtium. Actually, I used to live in Texas. I lived in San Francisco and now I live in New York. All three very different climates and all three I've had nasturtium growing near me. And they're like these beautiful orange, yellow, pink flowers that range in colors, but they're also edible. And the nice thing about them is their stems are edible too. And their stems have a very different flavor, but they're very peppery. And um, so you can use all parts of the plant and they regenerate very quickly. And, you know, another, like one other building on that, upon that, like one other solution we do is we work with our community garden here. So when they have things like chocolate mint or nasturtium or tomatillos, I don't know why they're growing tomatillos, but because <laughs> there's not a lot of uh, demand for them um, in our local food system. Like but <laughs> we end up taking those um, and using them in cocktails and they're local to us. We can literally clip them the day of and bring them to the restaurant and we end up donating up like uh, 25 to 50 cents from each drink back to the community garden um, and help support this uh, hub for food security in our neighborhood. Um, so I love that idea of like thinking about what's beautiful and what's local to you um, in terms of uh, uh, aesthetic 
um, for your cocktails. Cool. Um, gosh, I really messed up these slides. Um, but I'm just gonna keep going. Um, so, um, <laughs> um, so uh, two of the other things I wanted to talk about really quickly were um, coconuts, um, which I think are really interesting. Everybody should kind of look at these um, articles here, which I had um, very nice visuals with at one point. But um, <laughs> they, um, um, you know, obviously coconuts are another big ingredient that we think about when we think about tiki. Um, most of those, um, I think it's like over 60% of our coconuts actually come from the Philippines. So it's a, a topic specifically close to my heart because my family's Filipino. And, um, and there's, um, you know, there's good and bad things about coconuts. They don't really need a lot of um, pesticides. Um, because they are naturally like very durable to the climates they're being grown in. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the workers being um, in those industries are paid very little and then processing those coconuts into um, goods that we would use in drinks um, or food um, is, has a pretty high carbon footprint. And there's also the travel involved with the coconuts. That is something to consider. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, almonds are a big one, um, which is, um, yeah, there we go. Um, almonds is something I've kind of like always uh, talked a lot about, which is, I'm skipping ahead here. There, coconuts, almonds Yay. is another big ingredient that I always talk about um, in cocktails. And I highlight that in the recipe that I use um, for the demo, um, but most of the country's almonds are grown in the U.S. and um, most of them are grown, or sorry, most of the country's almonds are grown in California, and um, California is always in this kind of state of drought, and almonds use a shit ton of water, yeah, yeah. and um, and so I, when I was doing this research, um, particularly for this talk, I was thinking a lot about um, the different substitutions we could use for almonds because not only are almonds very water intensive, but they also require lots of pesticides. And I've already, already ranted about how bad those are. Um, but because they're also using so many pesticides, they're also killing off a lot of the bees and bats in California, which are really affecting, have these like really horrible ripple effects um, in, um, in California's biodiversity and the ecosystem that, they, that we're a part of there. Um, so almonds are like pretty bad on all levels. Um, <laughs> um, but I did, when I was doing this research, um, you know, I use sunflower seeds, which I'll talk about in a second, but um, as my almond replacement, um, but I thought it was really interesting that the original almond recipes um, called for, um, started with barley um, and then eventually included almonds into it. And then eventually more or less worked barley out of it. And barley was actually, a um, is a very um, drought resistant crop. And I think it's really interesting that we like took this thing that was like fairly sustainable in itself and like shifted it towards this product that is completely not. Um, so when people like to argue with me about how my sunflower seed orgeat is not historically correct, um, I also <laughs> like to just uh, point out that almonds were not necessarily used in the first orchards either, and that maybe we should think back to what people had easy access to when we didn't have 
an overabundance of uh, pesticides and things like that. Um, I'm not going to talk that much about cane spirits because I feel like that is um, a very obvious topic that we um, I would like to think that people are considering when they talk about sustainability and spirits. Um, but, you know, again, it's not like what proof does this come off the still at? What um, is it a wild fermentation? Like think about adding building in some of these um, questions that we have talked about as we looked at other ingredients in our cocktails. Um, and building that into what you ask your distributors, what you ask these brand ambassadors um, when you talk about, when you're asking them about um, the bottle that they're trying to sell you that day. Um, <laughs> and then, gonna have that? That's, that's really uh, uh, generous, generous. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, you know, I just wanna end my little, my long rant um, about, um, you know, circling back to like, when we talk about tiki as escapism and tiki, who is the ones, who are the people benefiting from the power of and money uh, that um, is generated from tiki and who is at the other end of that spectrum. Those are typically the cultures and people and land that are gonna be most affected by climate change. And this is um, a really great report. Um, I can send everybody the resources for these, but, um, from um, Vision of Humanity, and it um, talks about who is in the highest risk for cl um, climate change and uh, singular events and also ongoing risks um, from climate change. And it's Asia Pacific, South Asia are like the two groups that are most at risk. And those are the two groups that we ultimately are um, you know, trying to honor or um, reference when we think about tiki. And um, I think that this highlights perfectly how we can't keep these conversations separate anymore. We can't pretend that, you know, this these idealized places we escape to are going to be around forever if we don't make um, try to make singular individual choices. And I know that people always are like, nobody, you know, my not using a plastic straw is not gonna, you know, help the rising waters and things like that. But as we solve the straws, you know, these are individual actions that, um, especially as people of like decision makers and kind of gatekeepers to what's cool um, in our communities, um, they ultimately add up to large scale collective actions. And on top of that, um, you know, this critical thinking is also meant to, I could do a whole other presentation on this, um, start thinking about like what that look, these decisions look like in terms of um, real life, real time political happenings in your community. So I guarantee you that there are votes on plastic bags, there are votes on um, where subsidies are going in terms of, are they going to pesticide heavy agricultural industries or are they going to farmers trying to go organic? Are they going to, you know, there's all these things happening. And so um, it's not just about your purchasing, but it's about what you're participating in as well. It's uh, even at a local level with regard to like regulations and things like that. Yeah. It's a really good point. That's cool. it. <laughs> I, have, I have a few questions from the crowd here. So yes. One is how can we merge this approach with the growing interest in alcohol-free options? Um, 
That's a great question. I mean, I don't think that, um, A, I don't think that alcohol-free options are, um, you know, free of criticism either. We need to be asking, like, how is your product made? Where is it made? What um, is the base for it? Because um, all these bottles come from something. They come from a grape. They come from um, some sort of raw ingredient. So asking those questions, asking the questions about the people that make them, um, and then, um, you know, just like anything kind of being critical about like the ingredients you use, um, to build your cocktail around this non-alcoholic spirit or, you know, a lot of people use teas and things like that. And tea is like a whole other rabbit hole of, um, you know, where are these teas being sourced? Where are, um, who is in, you know, handling the production of those teas and, um, there's a lot to be learned from, I think, uh, like the fair trade coffee movement, even though it has its own um, problems. Um, but that is a model that can be, um, you know, definitely um, referenced when you're thinking about not using alcohol specific products. Got it. As kind of a layer on, and, and it was mentioned before, but um, what are your tips for menu design to signal sustainability without writing a novel? So how do you get that across in a, in a simple way to a guest who's, who's coming in? Yeah, um, I think that's a great question because again, I like, you know, I don't wanna hit anybody over the head with it. Um, but also um, I think just in general, my approach has always been for things to be really simply worded on menus. And then when people get it, they're like surprised. Um, I like to over deliver <laughs> um, instead of um, underwhelm. And so I've never been a big fan of like the huge descriptions under cocktails or even in food. Um, or like, I don't need to know your homemade syrup and your farm to table, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I try to, I personally keep my adjectives really low. And so people are, and, but we also, again, use these like kind of interesting ingredients like sunflower seeds or, um, fig leaf or we do a lot of like pickling and fermenting here and so that's meant to kind of cue people to ask those questions i think even something kind of looking at it more abstract is like uh what is your menu made of um i know that obviously that's a a little bit of a tougher thing to navigate right now since we're at least in new york not supposed to use single or uh reusable menus but and most people are going digital but um, you know, I've seen menus printed on um, like uh, bamboo paper. And I mean, even all of our paper here is all made from sugarcane bagasse, even if it's just the printout shift notes and things like that. Um, and like, you you know, thinking about the coasters you're using or um, just all these little different things that you can kind of um, look in your space and identify the waste and um, and start just being like, what could I use instead of that? Um, and going from there. Got it, cool. Uh, last one, I know you mentioned this, but how are you approaching sustainability in our new single use COVID world, prep gloves to go wear, et cetera? Any, yeah. any ideas on that? I know it's challenging. It is challenging, it's hard um, in so many ways and painful. Um, again, like we went to all single use cause I just didn't feel comfortable bringing um, our um, dishes back in our space personally. Um, 
but I tried to do my due diligence to make sure the materials I was using um, was suitable for our conditions. So this is something I also reference a lot in New York, um, which is very different than San Francisco. Um, San Francisco is kind of different from everywhere, but um, San Francisco has uh, municipal composting. And in New York, we don't have that. It's not citywide. Um, and so we, and there's really not any commercial facilities or industrial sized facilities to handle composting. There's community gardens and like little compost sites, but they're not meant to process stuff like greenware, like world centric, like bioplastics and things like that. Um, those all have to go to um, a whole other facility that we don't have access to in New York. Um, so what usually happens is you go to all these coffee shops and all these people doing to-go cocktails here and they're using like uh, world-centric uh, bioplastic cups and those get tossed in our recycling here in New York. And what happens is they actually end up contaminating our recycling systems and devaluing our recycling um, in New York. Um, and I think we, um, you might have read, and over the last few years, like China stopped accepting our recycling, like recyclable materials, because the, um, because it was so contaminated and the value was so little. Um, I'm not going to say that uh, <laughs> bioplastics are responsible for that, but they definitely contribute to it. Um, so, like, just asking, like, going, calling your local trash company, which I know is not something we ever thought we would do um, as bartenders <laughs> um, or owners of restaurants and like asking them like these questions and seeing what materials work best. Um, I'll say as another pivot here, um, I mentioned that my dining room is now a store, a retail store or soon to be open retail store. And we made a point to stock it with things that um, kind of um, care, kept carrying this message of sustainability. So whether it was spices that um, are um, that are grown organically, and like the women that farm them in India are paid um, are paid really great wages, or if it's um, you know um, indigenous grown grains, or even I we're selling like I'm selling toilet paper now. Plant paper that's tree free, toxin free, toilet paper. Um, oh, nice. So, all of those things um, kind of keep building layers, um, even though it's COVID and even though we're struggling. Um, you know, those are things that we're doing. And then I think a lot of people kind of are kind of. Um, pigeonhole sustainability as something you have to spend more money on. And oftentimes it does like solar panels cost a lot of money, but doing these little things that I've often talked about, like changing your light bulbs to LEDs and changing the faucet heads on your sink so that they're not dripping a, but also that they are like, does the hand sink in your bathrooms need to run at six gallons per minute? Um, all those things are very small, easy changes you can do tomorrow that cost a small investment, but ultimately save you a lot of money. And I think more now than ever in this pandemic, we all could use those little pennies and dimes that we can pull together from that from these things that we're ultimately saving money on, but we're also um, saving waste on and um, helping um, lower our climate footprint. Awesome. Very cool. Well, since we are on Tiki Tuesday talks, let's let's make a tiki drink. 
I'm going to bring Aaron in. There he is. There he is. Let's throw this cocktail up. Claire, do you want to tell us about this cocktail before we get Aaron making it? Yeah, so this is um, a twist. I think I've done several twists on this cocktail over the years. But, um, you know, when I got into sustainability, it was um, really because I was working in San Francisco and very focused on water. And I, um, I'm, like, obsessed with water. I think about it a lot, um, even in living on an island right now, um, the beautiful Long Island. Um, it's still something that's really top of mind, and I think people undervalue how much we have to think about it even here in New York. Um, but so, again, touching back on the idea that almonds are bad, um, I was like, what's my almond, what's my almond edge? What's the, what's the thing I'm going to use instead? And so I found sunflower seeds, which is um, sunflowers are drought resistant. They have deep roots that access nutrients below um, other plants. So they're not zapping um, nutrients from other plants that might need them. So they're good neighbors. Um, they also serve lots of different uses, um, but most of our sunflowers that we um, buy for commercial or food use in the United States are sourced from Europe, and Europe is no GMO, so there's never been like a GMO industry or market for sunflower seed production, um, and they're low till, and so you don't need a lot of manufacturing equipment to grab to harvest them, and they're really nice to look at. And so we ended up using them um, in our orgeat, but also we work with our kitchen. They use like the solids that we strain off to make granola here. And then we, we dehydrate the flowers and garnish it. So it's our way of working that flower component back into our drink. Super cool. Super cool. Yeah. If anybody wants to make this drink, please do post it up. Well, let's kick it over to Aaron. Uh, to see the bill. Awesome, awesome. Welcome, everybody. I guess let me lower my camera so you can actually see it. Uh, nice. There we go. Bar's looking good lately. Hey, man, you know, it's it's not getting used, so absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, awesome. All right, so like, we're going to start off with our wonderful sunflower orgeat and include an ounce of that. It is a little thick. <laughs> All right. And then second, we're going to add a half ounce of fresh lemon juice. Uh, ounce and a half of our cruising aged dark rum. And then finally, the delicious the Kuiper triple sec and a half ounce of that. Now, Chelsea, it did say that you just wanted to build and dump this in the glass. Is there a reason why we're dumping as opposed to straining over new ice? Um, so the one of the nice things about Tiki is that um, a lot of the drinks are built on crushed ice and um, my programs are all built around crushed ice machines because they're actually um, closer to uh, 90 to 95% water and energy efficient compared okay. to um, cube machines. And, um, you know, you'll hear like people call this dirty dumping or um, party pours is what I think the oh, nomad party. group calls. Um, but um, <laughs> one of my friends here in New York, 
Um, she refers to it as um, a, um, oh no, what is it? A um, save and pour, I think, oh. pour and save. And so when you're using, when you're pouring ice into straight from a tin, instead of uh, pouring it over new ice, you're using essentially half the ice and you're using half the water and electricity that you would normally use to make that cocktail, um, which really adds up. So we build all of our recipes around crushed ice here to be more water efficient, which is really awesome. dorky. Awesome. <laughs> we, talked, we talked yesterday, I did a session uh, with some friends in Canada and, you know, the caipirinha is, is dirty dumped or now party poured, which I like even more. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, very cool. All right, so we have our we have our delicious cocktail here, uh, garnished with some pansies. And you would be happy to know that I grabbed these pansies. Unfortunately, I didn't have time to grab some uh, sunflower petals, but these pansies are actually grown in house in my that. windowsill, so very sustainable and approachable. <laughs> Thank you. And you're also living my dream right now, which is bartending sitting down. Like that's all I want. As I get older, I just wanna, I just wanna relax when I'm bartending. It's amazing. I think we've had almost everybody has bartended sitting down who's been on our show, which is which is a really interesting dynamic. I mean, Tiki is laid back, so there you go. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Thank you guys. We'll bring you back in a moment to say goodbye. Uh, but awesome. I want to get into our five questions. Hey, buddy. Hey there. What's up? <laughs> How you doing? Thanks for being patient. Ah, this, this is awesome. It's great. Right on. All right. Are you ready for your five questions? I hope they're not too scathing. Oh, yeah. Real <laughs> tough stuff. Real yeah. tough stuff. The surprise uh, elements make me nervous. How many Aloha shirts do you own? Oh, is this one of the questions? Yeah, this is it. Oh. This is number one. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a poser. I, I got all my like um, like uh, summer esque button up shirts from Bonobos. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just, you know whatever. Um, so I'm gonna say four, and I reuse <laughs> them very frequently. Oh, yeah, yeah. You look good in them. We got a photo here of you in one. Uh, oh yeah, that thing. That's my one. Yeah, yeah. My one that I overuse. There it is. What's well, a good one? Great. You look great. Actually, I think I think one of my old roommates worked for Bonobos. Funny enough, can you uh, hook me up with a deal? Possibly. <laughs> Remind me. <laughs> their their like sales are pretty uh, pretty fire, but uh, a sale on a sale would be even better. There you go. There you go. All right. Uh, favorite Tiki Buzz Sea memory. Oh man, um, this is gonna go very. Uh, you know what? Uh, two. All right. Uh, riding on a boat, seeing dolphins. Like, I mean, that's, that's pretty, that was, that was a, an extraordinary experience. I'd never, with all due respect, never looked at New Jersey under that light before. Um, <laughs> most I, people, most people are based in New Jersey in their experience. I mean, you look up like top 10 trip advisor things to do in New Jersey. And number one is look at the Manhattan skyline. So, <laughs> that, that's been my unfortunate perception of most of Jersey. Um, right. Right. But yeah, it's like sailing on a, you know, on a, on a cruise, like uh, that, that, that yacht ship thing that we're on, uh, seeing a bunch of dolphins, a school of dolphins just kind of circling around. That was wonderful. Yeah. 
Um, getting second place in the Tiki Garnish Throwdown. Um, oh, yeah. It goes against our sustainability talk a little bit, but um, just think, <laughs> think a little bit, you know, trial by fire, serving a drink in a big egg, big eggplant. That was pretty fun. Uh, uh, you know, to tack on a bonus third there, like meeting some, meeting some people that I still keep in touch with to this day. Um, some really, really awesome uh, industry professionals. Uh, that was such a fun time. Very cool. Glad to hear it. All right. Weirdest thing you saw in Wildwood. Weirdest. I guess I just, uh, everything was written in that Rocco's Modern Life uh, font, um, which really spoke to me in my childhood. Um, I felt like, you know, where has this place been all my life? Uh, that I don't know why that was the weirdest thing. Like, you know, you had hotels shaped like volcanoes. You had, um, again, New Jersey under a whole different light that I was used to. Uh, but yeah, the, the font uh, and typography decisions were just honestly my big one of my biggest takeaways. That's a good point. I mean, there is a range of fonts that is hard to find anywhere else, basically. Yeah, in, only Wildwood. Only Wildwood. Only Wildwood. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. All right. Um, favorite Tiki by the Sea memory. Oh, we, we did that one. Hold on. Favorite meal in Wildwood. Favorite meal. Favorite meal. You know, we had that big old pig roast at very, very tail end uh, with, uh, that, at that one restaurant. Um, that was extraordinary. I mean, you put a, you roast a whole pig and, and if you eat meat, uh, how can you not have fun? <laughs> it, yeah, it was, it was lovely. Right on. Tell us about Yaki Tiki. Oh, yeah. Um, so, um, amidst uh, all these reopenings, uh, so Yaki Tiki is sort of, well, let me back up. So we opened up a restaurant called Rule of Thirds. Uh, it's a Japanese izakaya inspired uh, Brooklyn restaurant. And uh, the bar program uh, basically tries to play with uh, some umami flavors as well as Japanese spirits and sakes and chochus. And um, we've been very fortunate to be packed and busy like every night um, to where we can't really accommodate very many walk-ins. And so our sidewalk, um, we've uh, put out this kind of real casual, fun, tented um, experience called Yaki Tiki, where it's more the um, small, you know, Binchotan skewer uh, portion of the dinner menu, along with some Japanese-inspired and Tiki-inspired uh, cocktails that are very, you know, loudly garnished and fun and it's a rotating menu of four different cocktails so um again we try to channel that same ideology of uh you know taking tiki or american classic cocktails that are more on the tropical side but giving them a japanese accent in a way and so um yeah it's just kind of our way to accommodate walk-ins but almost like our alter ego more casual fun uh, experience where you kind of let your hair down and you know just sit on these sake crates uh, that are brightly colored and uh, kind of just jam out to some tunes and uh, have some really delicious tropical cocktails. So that's kind of Yaki Tiki in a nutshell, in a, awesome. like a paragraph long nutshell. Yeah, very cool. Uh, look forward to experiencing it someday when I can yeah. make it back over there, but uh, you're doing really cool things. It was, had an interesting conversation uh, the other day with Chalky about the uh, who does work with Ming River and like the evolution of Tiki as like 
it's only been this one thing and it's really uninteresting to make it only this one thing and how access to all these different amazing flavors and cocktail traditions and ingredients makes it way more fucking interesting. Oh yeah. Um, and I think you're totally going down that avenue with this. So super cool. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, she's definitely correct. And you know, Baijo itself, it, it's a very funky, you know, it's sometimes off-putting spirit to some people, but like when blended in with rums or mezcal, like it kind of gives a whole another element and it, you can mm -hmm. fit that within that uh, more tropical framework. Awesome. Very cool. Steve, anything else? What I miss? Um, I don't think you missed anything. I'm ready for Yaki Tiki day. Take oh, me yeah. there. <laughs> you sold it. You sold it. Yeah, I'm ready. Uh, all right, awesome. I got I missed one thing. I got to remind everybody, just contact info for Claire. Um, I'll add her back in also. So uh, IG at Claire Sprouse, sprouse.claire at Gmail. Reminder on tip jar Venmo at Hunky Dory BK if you are so predisposed. Um, but yeah, and then as another reminder, next week we're super excited. Uh, we have Gunnar Gislason, chef and owner of Dillon Iceland, uh, Michelin star chef, uh, also handled Agern in New York, uh, talking about building the plate. Culinary philosophy plays into building a spirit. Um, so that's going to be an aquabeat uh, and culinary session. Super stoked to have him. So we'll put everybody back. Hi, guys. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. Really informative. Thank you, Claire. Readability Funhouse. Yay. Thank you.